Hey there, welcome to a bonus edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Yesterday, if you heard, I had Lisa Banks on. Lisa is the attorney that's representing so many former employees of the Washington football team. And most of them, if not all, were interviewed by the team of Beth Wilkinson when they investigated harassment, toxic workplace over the years at the Washington football team. If you haven't heard, that report never has seen the light of day. It was an oral report given to the commissioner. And yesterday in New York, the commissioner chose to answer questions about it in the middle of a league meeting, saying that he thinks it's been appropriate, what punishments went out to the Washington football team, and how they didn't release a report to protect the confidentiality of those who came forward. Well, there are a couple of those who came forward that are joining me now and dispute a lot of what was said. Their courage, they're sharing their story in part two of my look inside the toxic culture of the Washington football team. I bring to you two former employees of that team to share their experiences, who they think leaked the Gruden emails, the toxic environment that they worked in at the Washington football team. So without further ado, here's Rachel Engelson and Emily Applegate, two former employees of the Washington football team. Welcome, ladies. Really appreciate you joining Thanks for having me. I wanted to ask you first, as we get into this, sort of give us each your background with working for the Washington football team, when you were there, and what role you had there. Emily? Yeah, so I started um, actually doing part-time ticket sales until Rachel over here uh, promoted me and became my immediate supervisor. So I was in the premium of uh, doing some client service work for a little while, and then I was promoted again to become the marketing coordinator, which is when I started working at, you know, the uh, corporate facility. As you know, there's two separate uh, facilities there, but that's when, you know, I got a new boss, the CMO, and um, really when everything went downhill for me. How long were you there and what years? So I started in early 2014, and I left uh, later in 2015. So I was there for about a year and a half. Rachel? Yes. So I actually interned with the Washington football team when I was in college at University of Maryland in 2010. Um, And then after I graduated, I started full-time in their ticket office in 2011 as a ticket operations um, representative. Um, and from there, I worked for the team for about eight years. Um, I graduated, I would say, from ticket operations into client services, um, effectively running all client services for all season ticket members, and then also adding on the role to be the director of marketing as well. At the end of my time, I was both in charge of marketing and client services. And how long were you there? When did you leave? I left in April of 2019, so I was there for eight years. Okay. So share whatever you'd like to share, and I want to be respectful of whatever sensitivity there is, about what went on in your experience there that is now being discussed privately. Obviously, it hasn't been made public, as we know so well, or not even in a written report, which we'll talk about. But talk about some of the things that you experienced there, Emily. Yeah, well, I've mentioned multiple times before I even went over to um, the Ashburn offices, people like Rachel gave me a warning and kind of gave me a heads up of what was going on over there from their own experiences. So this was 
you know, going on well before I even stepped foot in that building. And they were correct because probably day two, people started making comments about my appearance. Um, my direct supervisor, the CMO, he would tell me what to wear, what not to wear. Um, you know, I wasn't allowed to wear flats. I had to always be in high heels because he liked the way my body looked better that way. Um, I witnessed, of course, other people getting harassed, whether it was by top level executives or even just middle level employees because they saw the behavior of the people that they were following. Um, and that went from people like myself who uh, were full-time employees to interns that were you know, 19, 20 years old. And it really just kind of snowballed from commenting on your appearance one day to asking you kind of your weekend plans, but letting you know that, you know, you're, you're, you have to be all mine, you know, don't get to, it's just small comments like that. And then of course we talk about the toxic um, environment that was created. You know, you have one little mess up or, somebody's asking you to do something and they're not even conveying their question properly. So there's some miscommunication and now you're being screamed at in front of top level executives, uh, whether that was Bruce Allen or even Dan Snyder himself. And nobody really tells anybody, Hey, that's not the correct behavior. They just let it go. And until something like this happens until we kind of reach a breaking point where we decide that we're going to speak up and we're going to tell people what happened. So it doesn't happen to anybody else. Emily, before I get to Rachel, you said Rachel and others were telling you kind of warning once you moved over to the corporate offices of what was ahead. Can you be more specific as to what those warnings were? Yeah, well, I mean, Rachel herself had, and I'll let her obviously speak about it, but she had her own incidents with the top level executives over there commenting on her appearance and things like that, her own personal issues when she's at training camp and things like that. So she was was able to tell me, you know, this is what, and it was not just Rachel, there was women that worked already at the corporate office, where that's where they were housed out of, and they would tell me on a day-to-day -day basis, and, you know, I, I went in as mindset of, like, I can handle it, I can navigate my way through, uh, which I did for as long as, you know, as long as I could. Rachel, what did you experience? Well, I mean, I would say something that I told others is that the comments on your looks and your appearance and even your intelligence and what to wear and how you look when you wear specific things, it was very commonplace. Um, so that's something that you experience right off the bat. Um, I got that pretty much anytime I was at the corporate office at training camp, essentially anywhere there is a Washington football team event, you could expect that a man on the executive team would comment on your appearance and what you were wearing. Um, I specifically had encounters with the head of the broadcast department, Larry Michael, um, and he would actually comment publicly in front of people for me. So, um, like I said, I, my job was with, uh, season ticket members. So I would plan events. And part of that process was Larry would MC these events and he would comment about me on the mic in front of others. So I am publicly at these events and he's making comments in front of my own clients about me. It's very uncomfortable. And so like Emily was saying, I had these experiences almost immediately. I only worked, um, I only spent about nine months in the ticket office before I started planning events for season ticket members. And so I probably was about 23, 24 when this first started happening. 
And so I did start to warn the others. And I was warned ahead of time, too, before going to corporate headquarters in Ashburn. You know, friends of mine would say, OK, don't use this door. Make sure you enter this way. Just make sure you do this, this and this. And they would rattle off a list of do's and don'ts for the corporate headquarters office. I'll stay with you, Rachel. Did you ever report this kind of behavior to any superiors? Was there an HR person? Was there anyone to sort of share your concerns and your discomfort with what was going on? I use the term HR lightly. Um, There was always only one person who was in charge of HR, and I did actually report my incidents to my immediate supervisor. Um, And him and I had a pretty long conversation on what action we would take. And that action for us was he would handle it directly because we were not confident in HR to handle anything. So for my case, um, I speaking directly about Larry Michael, he ended up calling him on the phone to tell him to leave me alone. And so it worked for a little bit and then it, it didn't. So it worked for maybe a few months, if that, and then it continued again. So both of us, me and my immediate supervisor were not confident in the HR department and how the process would be for reporting this sort of thing. I also reported it again um, when there is a leadership change when Brian LaFamina and crew came in. Um, I reported to them probably within a couple of months of them starting. And after that, they um, actually brought in an outside company to have sexual harassment training. Um, And that was the first that I had ever experienced outside my original hiring documents of sexual harassment training, other than league mandated sexual harassment training, um, which is different because that was more geared towards the players. It's just the business associates were also lumped into that, right? So that was the first time an outside company not mandated by the NFL came in is when Brian LaFamina and team um, were at Washington football team. So you had to feel hopeful when that was happening. I did. I mean, it seemed like things were going to be changing. They took my comments very seriously. And in fact, they started interviewing, you know, a lot of people in-house. So they took it very seriously. And I had multiple meetings with team lawyers to discuss what was going on and what would be the repercussions. And for those folks that not only myself, but others named, they, um, I believe, had to go through some other sort of separate training, but that I was not privy to that information. So when Brian LaFamina comes in, there's some hope, there's some meetings and lawyers and everything, and then what? Um, well, they ended up getting fired at the end, not even the end of the season. So pretty soon after that ball went into motion, um, they all got let go prior to the end of the 2018 season. So all of the change that myself and all of the others had been seeing and all the progress and all the positivity, um, it went right back to how it was before they came aboard. When you say back to how it was, back to comments about your looks and what you're wearing and? Um, More in a leadership perspective of kind of this negative hostile work environment of, you know, I personally felt like uh, I was not getting those comments anymore because I was talking with team lawyers. So anything that was with me, our team lawyers made sure we already had this vast kind of list of complaints So they were still protecting me, but there still was kind of no HR person to to do any of that. And certainly um, the executives that were still there didn't speak to me about that process from that moment forward. 
Emily, I had just asked Rachel about her experiences and whether when Brian Lefamina came in, I think that might have been after your time there. But I want to ask the same thing. When you had some of this happen to you, did you look for someone to reach out to, like an HR person? Did you try to confide in people, maybe even Rachel? Uh, how did that go for you? Yeah, I didn't really feel like HR was an option for me. Um, I definitely confided in people like Rachel and other women that were in at the park with me. Um, but I didn't feel that if I went to the HR department, which is a very loose term to use, that there would be anything done. Um, at that time, there was one woman that was considered the HR department, and she directly reported to the CFO at the time, um, which you know, somebody that does not have training in any type of human resources or um, any kind of like conflict resolution type kind of things. So for me, I didn't feel that even attempting to file a complaint would get me anywhere. I think I just did the best that I could do with my boss directly in trying to just kind of get him to stop and get off my case as much as possible. Um, I would say things to him though, that, you know, this is inappropriate or you shouldn't be saying this to me. Um, or he'd just be watching me cry hysterically because of the things he was saying to me. And his response to me was always that I needed to toughen up if I wanted to be in sports. Um, I remember vividly him telling me that, um, my attitude, my New Jersey attitude was not going to get me far in business. And that was a response to me asking him to stop commenting about my looks. Um, so really, it was just him deflecting and trying to make it seem like it's my fault, that this was a normal thing, and I just needed to get over it. So just that, too, if I was going into an HR room with um, a complaint against the CMO of the company, I really did not have any confidence that it would be taken seriously or anything would be done about it the only thing that would have been done is that they would have replaced me instantly. Now, you both mentioned the harassment coming from various levels. I think, Emily, you even mentioned middle management as well as senior management. Was there any contact or maybe describe your contact, if there was, with the owner, Daniel Snyder? So I actually, my desk was located directly outside of the CMO's office and Bruce Allen's office. So when Dan Snyder was actually at the facility, he did pass me a few times. Um, <laughs> I did not have any direct communication with him because I would attempt to say hello to him. Good morning. How are you? And he would not even look at me. Uh, he walked directly past me. He did not respond, not even a hello, not a smile, not a nod. So you can see how he treated the people that were working for him. He certainly did not care about us. Um, so I did not have any direct interactions with him myself. Rachel? Um, I can confidently say in my eight years working for the Washington football team that I've had zero conversations with Dan Snyder. And part of that kind of onboarding, I would say, especially when you go to corporate HQ, was don't look him in the eye. If you do talk to or about him, call him Mr. Snyder. Don't use a certain door when you see his car parked outside. Um, and also just generally speaking, like women like Emily and myself weren't allowed to use certain entrances um, to gain access to the facilities behind um, uh, behind the HQ building. Hmm. So 
I personally did not have an eight years of conversation with Dan Snyder. He wouldn't even look me in the eye when we passed on game days. So I think that says a lot about him. Did you try, like Emily just said, to say good morning, hello, those th things? I did, and I actually did when I was with my direct boss, Jason, who he had a, a relationship with him, and he didn't speak to either of us. He avoided both of us, so no, no interaction. Let me fast forward, if I could, uh, to the investigation. So it's being handled by a woman uh, Beth Wilkinson, an attorney in Washington, D.C., did either or both of you sit down and have conversations with Ms. Wilkinson? Rachel? Yeah, so with the investigation, Beth Wilkinson's team reached out to, I'm represented by Lisa Banks, and so I spoke with someone from her team, not Beth directly, um, but I spoke twice with their kind of investigative team, um, both via Zoom, and I'd say I probably talked to them for almost three hours in two separate calls. How did you feel about that? I was actually pretty hopeful, to be honest. I thought that, you know, after having worked there for such a long time, that this would be my, probably my one and only chance to lay everything on the line. And that's what I thought going into it, that if I didn't say my piece now, that I would never get this opportunity again. And so I did that. And they seemed to be very interested in, in anything. They made it pretty clear right up front that there was nothing off topic. There was nothing that I could bring up that they didn't want to know. Everything was pertinent to what they were investigating. And so that's why we talked for such a long time, because nothing was off limits. So I did have pretty high hopes because they also told us, you know, hey, your name is going to remain confidential in anything that we write down. So if you name so-and-so that your name is not, it's not gonna come back to you. No one can retaliate against you because your name will not be in any report specifically. And so that did give me confidence as well because I could talk about a lot more of the things that I knew that maybe I was less confident talking about in a public situation. I wanna stay with that answer because I think this is important. Roger Goodell, when asked about it yesterday at the league meetings, said he wanted to respect the confidentiality and privacy of people like yourself. And you responded to that quote on Twitter, which got a lot of attention and kudos to you for saying exactly that. It was about your confidentiality so the owner would not know uh, you were speaking out, but not in this term. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah, when we first started talking with the investigators, there was no indication that were, there would not be a written report. In fact, it was kind of assumed that there would, and that's why they would reassure us when we got on these calls that our, our conf we would remain anonymous. So if I did say something about Dan, and they're reporting it back to the league, that Dan would not know that I was the one who said it, but not that it wouldn't be written down, so that it would never come back to me. And I think that's what is important and I think that that's what Goodell is currently trying to spin and trying to be all rah-rah, we're protecting everyone's identity, but that's that's absolutely not what was explained to us when we went into the investigation. And what was your reaction when you heard this would not be a written report? I, I, I was appalled, honestly. I mean, you're telling me that over 150 current and former employees are investigated and conducted interviews. And I personally talked to them for three hours. So if you just calculate how many hours of time 
that there's no single written report, it's it's ridiculous. That's really what I think about it. It's ridiculous. Emily, did you speak to ben, Beth Wilkinson's team? Yes, similar to Rachel, I sat down with their investigative team, not necessarily Beth Wilkinson herself. Um, and I did an interview with them. I was a little bit shorter than Rachel. I know my time there was a little bit shorter, so it makes sense. Um, but I gave every piece of knowledge that I had in that from my year and a half that was there. And similar to Rachel, my understanding was that if I wanted my identity to remain confidential, that, that they would do that. They would protect my identity, my likeliness, but my story would be involved in the investigation for the NFL. And just like most investigations that the NFL does, you assume that they're going to be releasing a report. Um, we've talked about it multiple times now that the Flate Gate was a 243-page written report. So for us right now, it's very clear that the commissioner feels that the air contents of the football are more important for the public to know than 150 former employees coming forward about the sexual misconduct that happened over you know, a 20-year span. Why do you think, first, Emily, there's no written report? I believe there's no written report because there must be so much damaging, so many damaging stories in that, that people are going to get in serious trouble. So right now they're protecting their little club. And if you read the NFL bylaws, which I have multiple times now, there's really no process to streamline an investigation. There is nobody there that says, yes, we need a written report. Yes, you even need to do an investigation. It's more of if we hear something, we'll look into it and we'll decide what we want to do depending on the situation. So, again, they decided that the air contents of a football were more important than 150 some people reporting about sexual misconduct. So there's stuff in there that is so damaging to the NFL as a whole, the owner, executives, maybe other teams, because we've seen obviously the Raiders be affected by this, that they're protecting something. They're protecting something that the public deserves to know, but they don't want to release it. It's so interesting. I'm leaving this podcast to go teach, and on the syllabus today is Deflategate, the 243-page <laughs> report done by a lawyer, Ted Wells. And uh, I should note for our listeners that Emily is standing in front of her law school where she's a first-year law student at Thurgood Marshall in Houston. So she's following uh, my footsteps, hopefully. Um, yes. <laughs> Rachel, what is you've kind of hinted at this, but I'm going to ask you directly. Why do you think there's no written report? I definitely agree with Emily that they're protecting the shield. Um, Roger, at the end of the day, works for all the owners. And once you kind of expose one in this way, you also expose all others. So I believe that there are things specifically in the report, in the emails, in every single interview that implicate probably a level of corruption as noted that already happened between um, Bruce and Jeff, that there's probably more of that and they don't want that to come out. And I think that that's why they're tiptoeing around protecting our identities because they're actually protecting their identities. They're protecting what happened to them. They're not protecting what happened to us. There's probably enough information in there to implicate many levels of people um, and just kind of the Year over year, I mean, Dan has owned the team for 20 years. So imagine 20 years worth of emails and we just saw a little glimpse of it from Bruce Allen. Um, there's there's more where that came from, for sure. Do you have a theory as to the leaker 
of the Gruden emails? I think Dan leaked them, to be honest. Um, it was no secret, kind of, especially not in Washington, no secret that Dan used Bruce as a scapegoat for every single decision and for the fans to kind of lash out at when things were happening that were bad and the team was performing um, poorly, everything kind of fell back onto Bruce. So Bruce was his fall guy, and that's kind of still what it is now. And I believe that kind of what was happening with the ownership change, he's going after the people to try and make them look bad, but I think it, it backfired and kind of recharged interest in the investigation into the Washington football team. It's interesting. Maybe I give Daniel Snyder too much credit because it would be extremely short-sighted to leak out that and not expect blowback and refocus of exactly what we're talking about, right? To sort of put that out there and then people think that people say, oh, okay, uh, we won't look into what else was in those emails or what else is going on. Just seems odd. I think um, having worked under the leadership of Washington football team for so long, that's why I would not be surprised it was him because of some of the PR strategies I saw internally. I just do not put it past him to be the one to leak the emails. Emily, two of your colleagues were up in New York at those meetings, hand delivering a letter to the NFL about being more transparent with this investigation. Were you aware of that? Were you involved in drafting that? So, yeah, we were all aware um, about the trip to New York City. Um, unfortunately, my class schedule got in the way, so I wasn't able to be there in person. But um, our attorneys, you know, drafted the letter. Of course, they send it to us for us to proofread and add anything um, or, you know, decide we want to take anything out. So we knew they were going up there. We were in constant contact with Anna and Melanie on their way up there while they were there. Um, it was a really proud moment for us to be able to sit back and watch them. Um, especially just for me personally, when the first story came out, I handled a lot of media by myself and it was extremely overwhelming and not anything I expected. And this time around, it is so amazing to have all these women there with me doing all this stuff and the, just the power and in, like just straight inspiration that they gave me to go into Manhattan yesterday and hand deliver those letters. It's just an amazing thing to witness and be a part of. I just, I'm again, so proud of them. But we definitely felt like it would be a powerful step to get people's attention. And I think it worked because yesterday the commissioner made you know, comments finally about the report and what his intentions were about it. Of course, we don't agree with what he said. Um, I believe that he was lying. Uh, I think that you can tell in the way that he was answering the question that he was not really giving any answers that were truthful. He was kind of stuttering, stumbling his words, couldn't really get a complete sentence out. So it was pretty clear that, uh, you know, he wasn't prepared for that, which is exactly what we wanted to do. We wanted to rattle him a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it was perfect storm with this issue being front and center with the first live in-person NFL owners meeting in two years and with the attention focus where, as you know, or maybe you don't know, I've been to so many of these meetings. Roger Goodell doesn't give a press conference in, in any case until the end of the meeting, which is today, but he did yesterday because of this issue, because of your colleagues, because of what you guys did. Um Rachel, Emily, and I were talking before you joined. Do you know the news today that Mark Davis, the owner of the Raiders, who I think was told to fire John Gruden and didn't want to fire John Gruden, has made a comment to reporters today. I think they should release the written findings or have a written report about this situation. 
I didn't see that. I am unfortunately in the thick of things with work right now, yeah. so I've been very busy, but I'm surprised. I'm very surprised, but I do agree with you that he did not want to fire Gruden, so I, I'm i just surprised that he would publicly say that he wants a written report. Yeah, I mean, uh, breaking ranks, like you said, with the owners, it's a big step. Where do you think this is going? <laughs> Do you are you uh, hopeful, obviously, of the report made public? Because obviously, Beth Wilkinson and her team have an ability to put together something written. There's no doubt about that. Are you hopeful of that? Do you think it's realistic? Where do you think this goes, Rachel? Well, I think um, this has less to do with what the NFL is going to do and more of what the Oversight Committee is going to force the NFL to do. So I'm hopeful to see um, how much they're going to press the issue. Um, and I think Congresswoman uh, Maloney yesterday said that she wants to see all of the documents from the investigation. Now, Goodell does not have to give all of that over, um, but she can subpoena them. And so I think we'll see what happens next Thursday on what the league provides back. Um, and I think both Emily and I would love to work with anyone on the oversight committee to kind of talk about our experience exactly like this. Um, I think because the government is trying to get involved, that gives us more hope. But the last thing that we want is for Goodell to give a watered down version of the report, just because now there is this renewed public interest. I think that's what we don't want to happen is there to be this maybe one to two page report that comes out that gives a small summary of what happened and here's what we did and here's what we're doing. And that kind of checks off the box. Yeah, for people, for listeners who don't know, Congress entered the picture on Friday and the House Oversight Committee, as Rachel said, is looking into this and wants the documents themselves. So like I said, and uh, I was being a little facetious, Rachel, but I don't know, if, uh, Dan Snyder, to be so short-sighted to think we would stop in the inquiry with John Gruden. Uh, of course, here we go. Emily, uh, any final words from you? Um, you guys have been very courageous sharing your story. And uh, as you stand in front of law school there, um, any last words before I ask Rachel the same? Emily? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I want to mention how appreciative that we all are that this has now gotten so much attention. I think for a while now, we were very disheartened because we didn't really think that anything was going to happen. And as you've mentioned, and I know Rachel talked about it, the PR stunts uh, from the team really all backfired. And in my opinion, they've all really helped us. You know, this got back into the attention. Congress is getting involved. Um, it seems like the NFL is going to be forced to release the report, which is amazing. To Rachel's point, uh, hoping it's not a watered down report. But we saw today that Chicago Blackhawks, they made their report of the sexual misconduct that happened in their building public. So they did that with also protecting the identity of the person that stepped forward and said that they were assaulted. So it's not something that can't be done. It's just something that the NFL doesn't want to do. So the more pressure that we put on them as uh, victims of the situation, fans of the organization or the NFL, members of government, people like yourself, the more traction we're going to get and the closer we're going to get to actually release the report. Thanks, Emily. Rachel, final words? Yeah, I would just say um, a couple of things. One is that 
this issue isn't just about kind of the misogyny and toxic workplace of the Washington football team. As we've seen from the emails, there's also hints at racism and homophobia. So there's more to this than just what we personally have been talking about. Um, and I think that raises issues for the league itself and kind of the overall culture of what's happening in corporate America. So I think that hopefully Congress is looking to make an example of the NFL. But I also think that um, there's just more to this story. And I think that fans do need to understand that in order to kind of hit them where it hurts, they need to stop watching the games, they need to stop buying merchandise, like all of these things still benefit Dan Snyder. Going to games, buying food from concession stands, watching, those all still help his bottom line. Um, and also, you know, we saw when the team was forced to change their name is when sponsors came into play. Um, Emily, myself, and a few others signed a letter to the biggest NFL sponsors asking them to weigh in on this, and zero have responded at this time. And mm -hmm. so I'm also questioning why are they not responding to this, especially now that it's this has gotten so much attention? Why have none of those sponsors responded? Um, so I think there's a few things to look at there. Um, and I also think that the public kind of deserves to see what those changes were that Goodell was trying to mention that the Washington football team has made since the investigation started that I think he also said started before the investigation, which I would say is also false. Um, there's been a lot of turnover there. And one of the ways that Dan has been able to silence even more people is through firing the people who had been working there. So he's letting go all of these people and they're re-signing NDAs so they are not able to speak. Um, so I think that's kind of worth a public look as well as who's still there and who's let go. And also who from the current team of his executive leadership has left because it's my understanding there's two and maybe more are going to be leading. So we're just seeing more of the same with Dan Snyder and his leadership changes. Emily Applegate, Rachel Engelson, really appreciate you joining and, and sharing your stories and happy to give you the forum to do that as this issue continues to percolate on what is going on with the Washington football team and this, this report that has never seen the light of day to this point. Emily and Rachel, thanks for joining me on the Business of Sports podcast. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you so much. Truly appreciate those women sharing what they experienced. I hope you really enjoyed it to look inside what's been happening there, how it's been hidden from public view, and that has changed with podcasts, with information like this. Thanks to Emily. Thanks to Rachel. Thanks to you for joining. I'll have much more of this in my newsletter this week. Join me by signing up at andrew-brandt.com. My Twitter has been going strong at Andrew Brandt. Instagram, Andrew Brandt, too. And of course, the column about this at Sports Illustrated and all these podcasts. Appreciate the listen. That's been it for part two, looking into the Washington football team with Emily Applegate and Rachel Engelson. I'll see you next week on the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt.